The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Day Show. And greetings. Happy Monday. Welcome to the Steve Day Show. That would be me live on The Blaze on demand at CRTV. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. If you'd like to join us here today, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Today, We're going to take a deep dive into the 2018 election. We're going to look at it both from a grassroots activist perspective later in this hour. And then coming up next hour, we're going to be joined by one of the mainstream media analysts I used to work with in my newspaper days, somebody whose opinion I haven't always agreed with, but I have always respected. And we're going to get sort of a broader view of the election and the electorate from someone that's outside of our own conservative echo chamber, but also um, isn't offended to share a community and a country with people like us at the exact same time. And I think it's good to critically think on a regular basis. So we're going to do that coming up in hour two, and you don't want to miss that as well. But we begin, as we always do, with an update. Here's what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away, brought to you by No. Look at Nancy Pelosi right here. Look at this piece of sh- right here. Look at this piece of Pelosi right here. You don't belong here, you communists. Get the out of here. The caravan of illegal aliens continued to make their way to the United States over the weekend. Our message is we're not criminals. We're coming over here because we want to work. We need a job. We need better, you know, a better life. Also, how did this dude get that shirt? Cory Booker is facing an allegation that he sexually assaulted a man. The incident is alleged to have taken place in a bathroom stall in 2014. The Florida governor's race had a debate over the weekend. that pitted Ron DeSantis, a Republican, against a Democrat and open socialist Andrew Gillum. Do you think President Trump is a good role model for the children of Florida? Well, just what I know. Um, you know, I was very passionate about moving our American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And- I'm Mr. Confused Mayor? confused by the question. The question was whether or, not he, uh, whether or not uh, he thinks President Trump is a good role model for the children of Florida. <laughs> That's what I thought originally. I got confused. So Real Clear Politics has the average of that race very, very close. But hey, let's keep talking about Beta O'Rourke. You're a rock star. The Trump administration is considering defining gender as human history has for All of human history up until like five minutes ago. Whoa, a wow story. The Trump administration has a new definition of sex that would render 1.4 million transgendered people legally non-existent. I did not know Trump had all the infinity stones. And that's what happened while we were away in two minutes or less. All right, so we're going to talk today on our CRTV roundtable for our CRTV subscribers exclusively today. We're going to get into the Cory Booker situation. And... Because I think it feeds right into this, uh, do do we want to call it a dialogue or a debate? Sometimes it's been both gentlemen about how much do we embrace the other side's tactics? 
in order to make them live by their own rules, or as I put it in rules for patriots, you know, you, you reverse their premise and you use it against them, right? So how far do we go uh, in order uh, to make them live by what they want to impose on everybody else? And we're going to discuss that with the Cory Booker case coming up a little bit later on today at CRTV. But this conversation, I think, also plays in, and it's more cut and dried, in my view. Maybe you guys disagree. It's more cut and dried with the mobocracy following Nancy Pelosi around. So I don't know what you guys think. I, my position on that tactic, and I don't care what uniform is using it, my general position is no. Agree or disagree? I'll second. Yeah, that's what I said in the montage. No. Uh, there's... Then we are in agreement here, at least on our show. There, there's just I, I don't want to live in that place, and and if and if and if that level, it, I don't want us becoming the crowd outside of Lot's house, screaming Thomas Soul columns and Bible verses. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't want to do that. And if 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 that's what it takes to save America, then to me that it's we're, it's not worthy of saving. And I'm just gonna. Um, I'm going to actually do the Benedict option that people think poor Rod Dreher is advocating for. I'm going to do that myself. And um, we're going Operation Randy Weaver. I'm enjoying my satellite TV with my sports on the weekends. And y'all can, uh, you know, just uh, apocalyptico each other to hell as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't want that in my home, my neighborhood, on my screen. I freaking hate that, period. It's inhumane. Well, and it's also ineffective. It it instantly uh, the boomerang came around. By uh, I mean, it's so easy to to uh, neuter uh, this press and its talking points uh, unless you just give them the ball like this. I mean, you play right into their hands. Uh, and it's it's never effective on our end um, because we are the only one, as the very media who is talking, oh, come on, we're not going to use the mob word. That's insane. We'll be happy to use it in it's this case. Point. You, can, you yeah. can't win and that's the whole point uh, that that Steve has very been very much been making about uh, not becoming what we hate. You can you can have these pyrrhic uh, victi- victories in the short term. In the long term, you you won't have something you're proud to hand over to your children. It's impossible. Yeah, and we, didn't we just have a topic on Friday on the on the on the Dace Group Roundtable? Uh, things tyrants say. If you just let Nancy Pelosi talk for yes, five minutes, yes. she's going to clown herself. Yes. So there's no point in doing this unless you're just the other side of the same coin, which is what these people are. That's what the mob was that was chasing Nancy Pelosi around. They're not right wing. They're not conservative. They're just a mob. Mobs know no ideology. Mobs just mob. Mobs just destroy. Mobs seek to get attention for whatever reason. Maybe the people that are involved in mobs, maybe some of them might get paid maybe some of them are just crazy attention starved people who knows it doesn't matter they're a mob so again like steve said at the top of this no matter what uniform they're uniform they're wearing um the answer to this should always be no and i was really glad and quite happy when this started going viral that video started going viral uniformly and I follow a lot of leftists on Twitter. I, I follow a lot of media people on Twitter. Uniformly, though, those on the right side of the aisle said the exact same thing. No, no, no. 
Now, I could just be seeing it from, I don't know, some sort of tinted glasses uh, over here. But, but, but when I see those mobs attacking Republicans, I don't see the same type of reaction from, from the left. I don't see the same type of reaction from the media uh, either. So it's, again, that should tell you, uh, kind of along the lines of what Todd was saying, that should tell you where, where things truly stand as far as the attitude towards the mob from one side or the other. But the bottom line is, they're just the right-wing mob, if we want to call it that. They're not right-wing. They're not conservative. They're just the same, or just the other side of the same coin. Both of you made excellent points. I want to follow up on Todd. The tactical analysis you just provided, one of the primary, if not the only, maybe, reason there's been any closing of the energy gap in this election of the last few weeks has been what backlash to exactly what we have watched from the left doing this so uh, you know um dumbass much i i don't know if if you think electing people like nancy pelosi will lead to the end of your way of life i'm not saying you're not without evidence for thinking that but if that's what you believe why would you want to go out there and behave in the exact way that took an election that looked like it was over four weeks ago, and you've at least got a puncher's chance right now to win because people just I, listen. I don't. I live in the suburbs, and now you do too, Aaron, because you live five minutes from me. Okay, I live in the I live in the kind of suburb where this election and most elections for the foreseeable future now are going to be determined because we are seeing the Republicans are becoming the party of rural America and the Democrats are the party of progressive urban America. And so you have the suburbs and the exurbs of places like West Des Moines, Urbandale, Clive, and in major urban centers like Des Moines. These are now the battleground communities for national elections. And I can just tell you, people like me live in places like this because we don't want to be subjected to this. We hate this crap. If we wanted this stuff, we'd live on a, in a college town or we'd move downtown. We, 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 we live out there because we, we want peace and quiet. We don't want this, you know, part of the natural habitat. And, 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 and for you to watch voters where I live recoil at this and then decide, let's emulate this tactic, you're not thinking. There, there's no, no thinking analysis there. No, well, as you know, what I think about progressives, uh, and I firmly believe it, and I think we all do, is that they they can't help themselves. And that's why people actually look to a party led by a guy like Donald Trump and say, you know what? Those guys are actually the grown-ups in the room most of the time. Uh, if we start doing this, th then there's no line of demarcation between the two. It. It, it is, again, spy versus spy. And, and you are left with people uh, who simply uh, don't know what to do, close their eyes, and, and guess, stay home. It's not, and again, I, I, my analysis is not advocating for a Republican win, but if you want to be the ones who at least look like the sober minded people, even if you're manipulating us for, and, and your problems are um, altogether. Um, real and ones we should be considering one of them shouldn't be that you can actually stop triangulate control yourself mm -hmm. be a grown-up here you show that you can't and the press will take this and make us all wear it yes, yes all of a sudden the mob rule will the mob word will be in vogue you know and this weekend here i watched again football over the weekend and I've been critical, uh, and I think rightfully so, of the of the commercials many of the Republicans have been running yep. on the air yep. here. This weekend, I thought they actually got it right. So you guys remember a few weeks ago, David Young, who I'm not a, he's a total rhino, uh, 
you know, his Liberty score is awful, but he's our Republican congressman here in our 50-50 district in Central Iowa, the, the kind of district that's going to determine who controls the House. And a few weeks ago, I was upset because he's running Nancy Pelosi. And I'm not even upset from a partisan perspective as much as just, I don't like dumbassery. I, I can't handle it. So, all right, you're telling me your Democratic opponent votes with Nancy Pelosi, but you don't tell me why that's bad. Because most yes. Americans don't know who she is. This week, we this weekend, what did we see? Did you see these same ads, Aaron? Uh, no, I, I was I was going to the same conversation, okay. but go on. But this weekend, they started running the ads I'd run now, okay? Nancy Pelosi will raise your taxes. Nancy Pelosi will cost you your health care. Nancy Pelosi will let illegal aliens invade America. They actually started saying why it was bad to link up with Nancy Pelosi, all right? Which they should have started doing this like two months ago, but uh, at least they're, you know, they're, they're making this case now. And- for, to then turn around when you are trying at the same time to make her the national face of the Democratic Party, whose negatives right now are even higher than the Republicans, to then turn around and engage in these tactics to turn her into a sympathetic figure, it's just it's just dumb. I, I, there's no other word for it. it. Doesn't require any other technical analysis. It's just dumb. So so why do you do dumb things? And I think this is where Aaron, your side of of, of your follow up point comes into play. See, conservatives don't do things like this. And the reason conservatives don't do things like this is really twofold. One is one you guys have heard many times. One of the, and that is we have jobs, families, churches, businesses. We just don't have time to be professional activists in our spare time. We're lucky if we have any spare time. We tend to have more kids. More kids means more extracurricular activities, which Todd, you know, with four daughters means what? You have even more more time than you know what to do with, right, Todd? Sure. Yeah, exactly. In my minivan yeah, as I Todd, drive around. Todd is watching his beloved Milwaukee Brewers in the Major League Baseball playoffs on DVR because he's so busy with four kids all day long, okay? So our lifestyles don't lend it to being to being like this, but there's another reason, too. The other, And this doesn't go talked about as much because it's it, it's it's we're trying to cobble together a coalition of people that really can't agree on where to go other than their common disagreement of Democrats. See, conservatism isn't an ideology. It's an observational science. You are looking at existence and history and are objectively determining conserving these things. It's what's best for the human condition. All right. But you know, what is an ideology. Nationalism is nationalism is an ideology and this sort of fervor. See, ideologies produce when radicalized, produced these kinds of mobs. And progressivism was radicalized several years ago, which is why the mobocracy you saw in your home state of Wisconsin when Scott Walker came to power has now become a nationwide phenomenon on the left. Because when ideologies are radicalized, they produce mob behavior. Nationalism is an ideology. Conservatism is not. It's an observational science, but nationalism is. And so if... if if, and, and in many respects, nationalism and progressivism are two sides of the same coin, as Aaron pointed out. They both vie for, they both see the state as a supreme being. Nationalism is, hey, tell those sons of bitches to get up and stand for the anthem. Well, I don't know. You know, I, I may decide to sit for the anthem of a country that tells me if I don't want to give up my Christian faith, then you take my kids away and, and make me, and, and, and make my business go bankrupt. You want to stand for the anthem of a country that does that to you, Todd? Nah. Nah, I don't. To me, that's just that flag loses all of its meaning if that's what it, if that's the meaning it becomes. Indeed, I'm not an idolater. I don't worship flags. I don't worship relics. Okay, I believe in ideals. And if your relics and symbols symbolize and stand for those ideals, I'm all in. And if they don't, guess what? I'm at. I'm tapped out. All right. The nationalist though bristles at what I just said, because the nationalist is the America love it or leave it guy. Yep. 
All right. And then and then that's where the, the nationalist sees the angry mob taking away their their way of life. And then the nationalist says, well, we got to get right into the muck and mire with those guys and do that stuff right there back with them. All right. The nationalist goes Sean Connery Chicago way. That's what the nationalist does. And the nationalist is fine if we just drop nuclear bombs on everybody's house. And who cares what the collateral damage is or the Geiger counter count? Who cares as long as we got all the bad guys or we perceive the bad guys? Because for, because for nationalists and progressives, control of the supreme state is supreme. And when they are both radicalized, Aaron, that's when you see yep. the behaviors you saw. And that clip is a distinction between conservatism and nationalistic fervor that's the difference between the two right there and we started out a week ago i think one of the very first points in steve day's show one-on-one was we have to be in evangelism mode right now as conservatives and we've had this conversation with bob vanderplatz before who's coming up here in about a quarter hour and i'm sure we might talk about it again today what you just described steve is why as in evangelism mode as conservatives we, and I've said this many times before as well, and I'll introduce it to our Blaze audience, we have to get away from the idea of America as a piece of land between two oceans. What the nationalists are describing that you just, um, that you just uh, described, what the nationalists are pursuing, I should say, is a whitewashed tomb version of Americana, of America. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what we actually stand for. Doesn't matter what the laws are. We just want Americana the way that we remember it. It has to look a certain way. So as conservatives, those who have, as you said, Steve, looked back through history and decided as an observational science what has worked best and what has not worked best for the human condition, we have to get back to America as an idea, not a land, not... All of these accoutrements, as a word that you introduced me to, not all of these accoutrements of a Judeo-Christian founding. We have to get back to America as an idea, Americanism as an idea, not just saving America for America's sake because America is so awesome and America needs to be made great again. That's idolatry, actually, I would say. I'd say what's more appropriate for us, again, uh, distinguishing ourselves from um, America as America and America as an idea. Indeed, it's not about the accoutrements of a Judeo-Christian value system. It's about the Judeo-Christian yes. Yes. value system. The accoutrements do not produce the Judeo-Christian value system. The Judeo-Christian value system there are responsible go. for the accoutrements. It is not, as, as a wise man once said, it is not uh, what goes into your body that causes you uh, to sin. It's what comes out. All right, we 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 the nationalist wants to do this from the outside in, yep. Very, because the nationalist is a, is self is a, is self righteous every bit as much as the progressive. The conservative understands this stuff comes from a core, from the inside out. That is the key difference. And right now, there's this tenuous alliance in some circles on on the not left, because how we define things on our show is there's the there's the progressive left, and then there's what's left of America. Those are really the two that's two and, Americas. Anytime we say. Like us on this yeah, show, loosely, talking, that's pretty much yes. What we yeah, we mean. don't believe the majority of Americans are conservative by any reasonable right. stretch. We think the majority of Americans want government to do things that they can't do for themselves, and when they make a mess, they want government to clean it up. But they but they may not want government to clean it up at the expense of they get rid of every moral value that that the Democrats demand is the cost of doing business right. And so you have the progressive America, which is a whole new America, whole cloth difference. Not we're not arguing over general welfare clauses or establishment clauses now we're arguing we're, we're not even arguing about what's constitutional and unconstitutional they're anti 
unconstitutional. They're against the intended schema of the United States, like throughout the Electoral College and everything else you're seeing now. This is a this is a whole other country. It's a it's a foreign country that sees us as the foreign country. Now, the rest of America is is having the traditional Democrat Republican argument and how much should government do for themselves, do for you, what you can't do for yourselves. But, but that's the that's what's left of America. There's the left America and what's left of um, the original America. Right. And within that left of Am- original America, there's this tenuous alliance of all these various groups right now who whose only commonality is they don't want to become Marxists. But but when the Marxists are gone and then they're kind of left on their own to live out their lives, all the old disagreements come come back to the surface, and you see that here with the this with trying to absorb some remnants of nationalism that's not overtly alt right or racist, but other remnants of nationalism into conservatism, and you can see that's the difference right there. Nationalism is an ideology, conservatism is not, and when ideologies get radicalized, they behave like that. Now. That segues to where I want to go next, because what's going on with Beta O'Rourke right now, again, I think we don't understand this. And I think the silliness factor, we're making the same mistake with this that we're that I pointed out a few months ago, I thought we were making with um, Ocasio-Cortez, where because she's, va- she's vapid, empty-headed, and shallow, we just assume nobody's buying this. <laughs> and and um, again... That's maybe what we think in what's left of America. In the left America, they're this I mean, this is manna. They're injecting this into the veins. They're they're mainlining this the way Motley Crue and Ozzy Osbourne were mainlining mainlining Jack Daniels on the plane to the Perestroika concert in Moscow in 88. All right, they can't get enough of this. Because the reality is, guys, you have to be vapid on some level to accept her conclusions of of how the world operates. And to believe this ideology in the first place. Again, socialism doesn't produce the vapidness. Vapid shallowness leads people to buy lies and scams like socialism. Again, we, we're getting that we, we don't understand the inside out aspect of this. We believe this is all on the outside in. Well, we're looking at this Beto O'Rourke thing, and, and we're jumping on it from the media gasm with the you're a rock star. And and how he's not wearing an undershirt and he's sweating through. Okay, because because again, and I know you're like, well, this is Texas. Well, I don't know. Austin, there's some places that are in Texas. Houston had a lesbian mayor who thought she could subpoena the the sermons of the churches in that community. That's an important reminder. Okay, you know, so I, I understand it's our last remaining big state, diverse Valhalla. I mean, I was just down in Dallas last week, and during one of the commercial breaks, Glenn Beck, who's lived there the last several years, looked right at me and says, we're going to lose this state. Got all these people from California moving yep. in here, we're going to lose it. So you don't understand what's happening here with Beto O'Rourke, because you're looking at the style of the messaging. And, and, and we, don't, we don't go with this. That kind of style of messaging to us is like a parody. We mock it in what's left of America, and we're like, adults don't behave this way. Again, this messaging's not for as 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 Pearl Jam once saying, not for you. This is this 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 messaging's not for you. And they know he's going to lose. And they knew he was never going to win. This isn't about winning. And, and Wendy Davis wasn't about winning in 2014. 
when she was on the cover of the New York Times Magazine as Abortion Barbie. And Beto O'Rourke is not about winning in 2018. This is about 2024, right. 2026, 2028. They see the demographics are changing. I think I think our Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review had the number that 13% of the babies born in Texas right now are born to illegals. These are all the same demographics that existed in California. Guys, I've done extensive research on this for numerous entities the last 10 years or last five years. All the demographics that are in Texas right now existed in California at about 1982, 83, 84. Now, Texas is more culturally conservative right now than California was in the early to mid 80s. So it won't see the instant change with an amnesty like California did, but they're, they are tilling soil right now, right? And what you're seeing is they are using his campaign as a way to grow a statewide base, but particularly in urban centers like Houston and Austin, where the majority of their vote is, co- is concentrated. He's doing advanced work for them. That's, this isn't about beating Ted Cruz. They knew they were never good. Well, maybe some of their people are that gullible, but they were never going to beat Ted. They're not beating a conservative Hispanic in Texas in 2018. But they might do it in 2028, and that's what this is about. And, and, and forget the demographics. What you just described aside from that is uh, progressivism's approach all the way going back to the beginning of the 20th century. This is They are in it for the long game. They are the locusts in yep. this scenario. They keep plodding and plodding and plodding along. And anyway, bit by bit, uh, Robert Bork talked about this as the slouching towards uh, Gomorrah. And then they pick their spots, and sometimes wrongly, to kind of come out from under the rock and really go for it. Oftentimes, that's when they uh, overreach, but they never stop chipping away. They are this ugly pagan water against the rock and in they will win they will the the rock that we stand on the truth ultimately can't lose eternally but here on this mortal coil it can lose unless people who do know if they still exist what the good the true and the beautiful is stand up and fight against it. Damn it up, as Steve talked about, uh, you know, where you have to damn things up at the source. You, you got to pick this fight. It, it, progressives understand that they can and will win in the face of what is increasingly American, uh, uh, comfortable, I, I call it the gated community lifestyle. We sit there and we want what we want. And Steve says, I, I just, can't we just go out to the suburbs and enjoy our life? They have an answer for that. No. Once they get to, <laughs> they, once they get done with Austin, once they get done with inner city Houston, they are coming out to the hinterlands of Tempt Cruz yep. and where we live sooner or they'll later. They'll be at, they'll be in Westlake and Plano and Arlington. They will yes, just like they will be in West Des Moines, Clive and Urbandale where we live. Yep. Listen, Aaron, I want us to beat these people. Yep. All right? I just I'm just telling you though, we're not going to beat them if we just sit around smelling our own farts in the in, in our own echo chamber all the time and convinced that no one's buying this and it's and we make our opponents one-dimensional straw men. That's exactly how we feed into their hands. We have to see this as their intended audience sees it, not how we can clickbait troll it. Yeah, no, that's that and it is it is that's a difficult di- distinction to make, but that goes back to what we talked about last uh last week on three-dimensional thinking uh, and being able to be self-aware, being able to see things from other people's perspective honestly. And what you just described is is sounds a whole lot like a virus. I mean, you, do you know when right when you've caught a cold virus? Do you know the instant that you've caught a cold virus? No, it takes a little while. 
What you just just described is is how pre- progressivism and mass, whether it's the institutions or the political machine of a given region, that's how they operate. They they are methodical in how they go about this. And before you know it, oh, um, I've got some sort of viral infection here. How do I get rid of it? And what you just described is no, you don't you don't do that by. Um, uh, trying to fight virus with virus, you get virus times virus. Guess what you get? You get more virus. And so, again, going back to what I said uh, before, and I think trying to t- tie this all into a bow as well, the, the people who are in the not left America, so the left, and then there's the not left. The people in the not left America need Jesus just as much as the people in mass need Jesus just as much as the people on the left side of the aisle in America. That's why I think you see, well, boy, things were good back in Reagan's days, as the Gen Xers and baby boomers might say. Things were good back in Reagan's days. If we, it would just look like that again, America would be great again. Not recognizing, not having a vision, not recognizing that the true, the true cause of all of this is the lack of spiritual revival on a personal level. And that's what this conversation Always, every single day that ends in Y, that's what all of these conversations are going to come back to. Yes. That is the that is the true solution. Again, not for the sake of saving America for America's sake, but for the sake of saving souls. The reason why the Beta O'Rourke's and Ocasio Cortez's and Barack Obama's have what looks like religious fervor is because they're preaching a new time religion. So it was a leg day at the gym today. I ran into one of my old uh, sports talk radio listeners. I haven't seen in a long, long time because I haven't done local sports talk radio in town here in, gosh, 10 years. A long time. It's been a long time. Yeah, he's like, man, I can't believe how much different you look. You've, you've made a lot of progress. You've gotten a lot healthier. And one of the things that helped me is I got trained on how to separate fact from fiction. That, you know, it is true that it your body is calories in, calories out, but that doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. Uh, some people, uh, you know, just your physiology adjusts better to a low-carb diet for others. Not so much, et cetera. And, and, you know, the science and this is always updating. And, and as you get older, too, your metabolism isn't what it was, you know, when you were 30 or 25. And so just you've always got to stay up to date and you got to know where you're going to get kind of the fake news. You know, like, I, you know, the fish oil thing. Why, you know, I'm not a fish. Why would I put fish oil? I can get the same substances, you know, like in a mammalian source because am I a fish or a mammal? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Some people may have a different opinion. The jury's still yes. out on that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I'm, and I'm not transitioning to mammal. I was born one and will remain one. Uh, so if you're looking for the how to separate the real news from the fake news, you know, go to the supplemental facts panel on your superfood and find out if it's made from an extract or the actual food itself. And with the goal of creating a real superfood specially designed to enhance your health and help you reach your full potential, a team of top physicians gathered to form Brickhouse Nutritions, and they want to introduce their new product, Field of Greens. It is a first real superfood. And the difference that sets it apart can be seen right there in the bottle. When you look at the nutrition facts, it doesn't say alternative facts. It says nutrition facts. 
and it's made from real food. One scoop of Field of Greens is a full serving of real certified vegan, vegetarian, which I don't care about that stuff, but I do care about this. I like the organic aspect of it. You kind of want to get your food as close to the original source as you often as you can, and they do that for you. Complete with all the antioxidants you're looking for this time of year with cold and flu season almost upon us. It's really a daily clean energy source that's green for your body. And for a limited time offer right now, BrickHouseSteve.com. If you use promo code Steve, you'll get 15% off your first order. Again, BrickHouseSteve.com, 15% off your first order if you use my name as a promo code, and you can today experience a better you tomorrow. All right, so today we want to take a deep dive into the 2018 election. Election day is coming up here in, what, uh, 15 days now, two weeks from tomorrow. And we're going to look at it next hour from more of an analytical, broader perspective with someone whose opinions I haven't always agreed with, but have always respected. And I want us to get outside of our own, our farts smell great echo chamber and maybe see that there's a great big world of data and opinions out there that uh, aren't as easy as our low-lying fruit clickbait trolling that uh, we sell you here, you know, as our buddy Daniel Horowitz calls it, the political morphine. We sell you in conservative media, all right? But First, I want us to look at it from more of an activist perspective. What are you seeing on the ground? And a big day for me uh, every year, every election year, a big day for me is coming up, what's today, a week from tomorrow, is beggar's night. All right? And I know you're going to laugh, okay? I know you're going to laugh at this. But again, I live in your political ground zero American suburb. And you guys know I'm a data guy. I, I get paid to analyze data. But don't. Don't overlook, you know, you can't base your assumptions on anecdotal evidence, but you can't ignore it either. And, you know, when I took my kids out trick-or-treating, beggar's night, which is for what odd reason, I don't know why we don't trick-or-treat on Halloween in Des Moines. I don't know the reason why, and I don't care. It's dumb, but it's what we do. So when I took my kids out trick-or-treating on beggar's night 2008, every sign in every suburban yard I went to was Obama-Biden. Went out there in 2010, every sign was uh we hate Obama. <laughs> I went out there in 2012 and it was really 50-50 between Romney and Obama signs. I went out there in 2014 and there were like no signs. Basically, everybody hated everybody. I went out there in 2016 and there were no signs again. Like everybody hated everybody. All right. Basically, people were like people dressed up as voters for Halloween. That's how scared <laughs> they were to vote in 2016. Like, what are you dressed at? Um, I'm dressed like I'm going to vote right now. Are you terrified? Damn. Yes, I am right now. Yes. All right. So I'm anxious to see where the energy level is on the ground in Ground Zero Suburb in 2018. So Bob Vanderplatz is one of our good friends here from The Family Leader. He's kind of your conservative activist extraordinaire. Bob, good to see you on the show. How are you? Good to see you, Steve. Welcome. and Or thank you for letting me be on your new show. And I know you're happy that we reconfigured the set. So I am literally not on your lap this week. You know, I really like that. that. Uh, When I was singing, you know, Get Closer to Me, that was not a good time. No, no, it was not. Uh, so let's talk about what you're seeing on the ground. Just energy level interest. I mean, one of the things your organization does, you work to target voters, get voters out. Uh, you've got a, a select group of candidates that you think kind of are going to be warriors for the, the values that you guys prioritize. So you're, you know, in places like suburbs like where I live or sure. across the state of Iowa. And this is really a 50-50 state. Donald Trump did something that no Republican had done since Reagan in 84 back in 2016. He got a majority of the vote here. And he did it by winning 33 counties that went for Obama twice. 
and probably control for the state of Iowa is going to be determined in those 30 to 33 counties and in those kinds of counties nationwide. So what do you see on the ground right now? Well, first of all, I loved your anecdote about uh, beggars night because Darla and I, we do a bike ride around Lake Okoboji every fall. And two years ago, we rode around Lake Okoboji, which has a lot of beautiful homes. This is upscale territory. And I told Darla, I am surprised at how many Trump signs I'm seeing in these yards. Mm -hmm. And Trump obviously did very well, as you just mentioned. We did that same bike ride this year. And I said to Darla, there are too many Fred Hubble signs. He's the Democratic challenger to the current Republican governor. And we are endorsing Kim Reynolds for governor. I want her to win. We're doing everything we can to help help her to win. But those signs sent me a message. Then anecdotally, and I think I texted back and forth with you on this, mm-hmm. is the vice president was in town, and he was campaigning for Kim Reynolds and for David Young, two people that I want to see get elected or reelected. And there was 200 people that showed up for Vice President Pence for David Young and Kim Reynolds. And I said to Darla, when I ran for governor in 2010, in a primary, we brought Chuck Norris out, and we had 600 people at every stop in a primary. So for 200 to come out for the vice president, for David Young and Kim Rose, to me, that was a disturbing sign. But then just a day or two later, Bernie Sanders was in town campaigning with J.D. Skolton, who's running against Steve King for Congress. And I want King to be reelected. But there's like six, 700 people there for Bernie Sanders. In a, in, a, in a district, in a part of the state where there aren't a lot of Democrats. And so anecdotally, it said to me, we've got work to do on the ground. And there's not a lot of time to do the, the groundwork that we need to have done. I'm still hoping that uh, the, the demographics, uh, the status in the states, the numbers in the states, the jobs, uh, the climate in Iowa says, you know what? Reynolds should be reelected. Young should be reelected. King should be reelected. But on the ground, there's some definite, definite signs of Things aren't the way they should be right now. So, you know, I mean, you and I are good friends and have been for years. You And, and you know, Todd and Aaron work with me every day. You guys know how heavily driven I am by data. Sure. But, I, you know, one of the things I've learned this year, my football handicapping record is like insane. And, and it's because last year it wasn't that good. And I had to fight to get over 500 for the first time since I started doing this in college. And I'm like, okay, so I don't know less, so I'm doing this wrong. What, what am I missing? And something a very prominent football handicapper taught me this offseason that I think goes into election analysis as well is the trend is your friend until it runs into human nature. Human nature trumps the data. Okay. And, and so his point was, you know, like the Michigan Michigan State game over the weekend. Michigan State's history against Michigan matters until Michigan is just physically a lot better than them. And then it doesn't matter how tight the game was five years ago. There's such a wide talent gap right now that the game's being played right now. It's not a, it's not a trend anymore. You see what sure. I'm saying? So we can, we can get so insulated by data that we forget the human condition. And then, you know, the great prophet Keith Jackson used to say, analyzing is paralyzing. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't base my opinion on anecdotal evidence. What I would want to look at is whether the data what the data tells me about the, what the anecdotal evidence is. The energy level you're describing, like I looked at a few of the, the latest numbers out of Florida, for example, right before you came in. And they've got that race, and Aaron had it in his montage. I think the RCP average right now, we have Ron DeSantis, guy I know, versus Andrew Gillum, who's the very you know, progressive mayor of Tallahassee. 
And so if I know Ron DeSantis, it's either he's really good or really bad. Like, I don't like knowing any in between people. Like, I only know people we want to take out or people sure. we want to keep. <laughs> All right. So Ron's a good one from our perspective. And so here we have a really honest race where Andrew Gillum's a very honest, fresh-faced progressive and Ron's a very honest cultural conservative. And that race right now is like a 0.7 at the RCP average. See, this is now where anecdotal evidence comes into play. Huge. Because if you've got races like this across the country like uh, that are one or two or three-point races, the energy level that you see anecdotally, the energy level you see, like when people say, the old axiom where they were shocked Nixon won in 72 and the woman gets on the elevator and says, well, I don't know anybody that voted for Richard Nixon. Well, you live in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Of course you know. That's not, that's not all of America. And all of America also isn't, you know, Dallas, Texas isn't all of America either. Okay? Where the anecdotal evidence comes into play is when those margins are really tight and then you're not going to make up eight, nine-point polling margins because you see more yard signs in the neighborhood. Sure. But when it's going to be at a county-by-county, precinct-by-precinct level, and these are margin-for-error races, that's when it does matter. Well, when you're studying the data, the one thing that's really hard to get your hands around is that enthusiasm, that enthusiasm gap. And so I was seeing is that, is that an enthusiasm gap that we're witnessing? And that's why I think Trump is doing something that's really smart. Trump is very popular with his base. He may not even be looking at expanding his base, but he's very popular with his base. And so he's going into Council Bluffs, Iowa. He's going into all these different areas, and he's saying, vote as if I were on the ballot. What's he doing? He's trying to increase that enthusiasm to say, even though I'm not all that excited to cast my ballot for whoever it might be, I'll do it if Donald Trump tells me to do it. He's trying to counter that enthusiasm gap. I guess anecdotally, what I'm seeing in Iowa right now uh, it'll be a very interesting night, I think, uh, in a couple of weeks. You guys' thoughts? Uh, I think, unless you're thinking paradoxically about what's going on right now, even based on everything you mentioned, the, the data and the anecdotal information, we've got a, part, uh, a, a leftist party that people just think are going off the edge, and they simultaneously believe that pretty much the only hope who's standing in the way of that is somebody they openly acknowledge is also crazy, and that is uh, a Donald Trump-led Republican Party. They don't trust Team GOP on any level. So this is beyond yard signs and data because people don't even want to be measured on this anymore. They kind of want to be left alone. They don't want to answer the, the calls anymore. They don't want to take the polls. They don't want to put a, most. Yeah, you might be surprised at how many Trump signs you see, for, but most of the people that are voting Trump over their dead body, are they going to put a Trump sign? But they're still going to vote for him because they think this is nuts. The paradoxical thinking is, is uh, to me, is the thing that allows me to believe that there's nothing written in stone about a, a blue wave, a blue wave, because there's just a bunch of people out there. The, the left alone group of America is growing and growing and growing, that, and they are realizing that nobody is willing to be left alone. So their their thinking is very very short term. They know their thinking is compromised in terms of a guy uh, like uh, Donald Tr- Trump. So they're willing to just buy. I mean, really, their people, their head is barely above water uh, in a car uh, that is sinking, and they're hoping that they can just buy them, the, themselves a couple more seconds and that's that's desperate analysis that is sad analysis but there's nothing aspirational about this election there just isn't Aaron yeah um, it is it's interesting and we talked about this in the first Iowa particularly since this has kind of been the context of this discussion it is interesting in the first half hour uh, Steve we talked about some of the ads that we've been seeing run 
And for, you know, with the exception of David Young, uh, the, the David Young race and um, the, the, the governor's race as well, just because I know those names really well, on some of the ads that I'm seeing, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's on TV, watching college football on the weekend, um, I, I'm, I am, uh, some of the, you know, the, the, the lower races, I'm um, really having a difficult time figuring out just by the content of the ad alone who is a Republican and who is Democrat, because they all sound the same. If it weren't for the little paid for by the Democratic Party of Iowa or paid for by the Republican Party of Iowa, um, you know, little banner at the end of the ad, I would not know. Um, so I think there's a, there's a little bit of just um, not not much differentiation right now between the two sides. On the other hand, as well, my roommate, Jeff, he's um, you know he's he's a veteran. He's still in the um, he's still in the the Army National Guard right now. He is right now where I was about I don't know two or three months ago. Where I was just anytime we talked about the election, I was just checking out. You guys remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, he just he hates everybody right now. So that's one anecdotal thing uh, at, at the moment. I mean, this is this is what you were describing about 2016 and 2014. It just hates everybody. Those are the type of people that you would hope that Republicans right now would try to go after. But they can't do that because they don't have any leg to stand on, at least at a national level. They don't have a leg to stand on because they've broken and they have not kept most of the promises that they've made for going on almost 10 years now. So, again, all of this comes back to, and, and we're trying to go do analytical about, you know, who's, who's just kind of the horse race um, side of this. I just don't think that there is going to be enough energy, even if it's produced, even if it's negative energy from the leftist mob. I just don't see there being enough energy to really, um, to, to really make things interesting in some of the, the 50-50 j- districts. Because at, at the moment, still, and it has been, I think, for the last year, Democrats are, as we say, max lit. And I just don't think there's going to be enough energy on the other side for Republicans to overcome that. So, Bob, how would you respond to Todd and Aaron's thoughts? I mean, I, I definitely resonate with, with both their thoughts. Uh, when, when I listen to Aaron, I look at a lot of the commercials. You think Nancy Pelosi was on the ballot here in Iowa, or you think Donald Trump's on the ballot in Iowa because it's a nationalized election. They're running against Donald Trump or they're running against Nancy Pelosi. I do believe uh, this is going to come down to base turnout. I really do. I think Aaron's right. You can The left can't get any more energized than they have been forever. They can't wait for this election to happen. Now, whether that ends up being a blue wave, I'm not convinced of that yet. Because I think the left always outkicks their coverage. I think they did with Kavanaugh. I think they've done it with other issues. You know, and I think Trump is trying to counter that to some degree. That's why I think November 6th is going to be an interesting election night. What, you know, when I hear you guys talk, it, it seems to me, in some respects, this is the 2010 and 2014 elections in reverse. Sure it is. Where when Obama was on the ballot, uh, Democrats were very difficult for Republicans to beat. And when he wasn't, their party got annihilated. I mean, they lost almost 1,100 elections uh, in 2010 and 2014 and 2016 nationwide post-Obamacare. And that's because you could res- – maybe you could – rationalize that is it's the power of his persona when he was on the ballot they got more of the boost than the backlash but without him being the face of on the top of the ballot they got more of the backlash than the boost are we just seeing the same thing happen right now i think you definitely are and but the one thing i think we're all realizing too and this is since the 2016 election for us to try to 
put norms to elections today. I think everybody's like, I don't know how you're going to throw, put a norm on this thing at all. If this was a normal election, I think you'd, you'd be uh, ready for a blue wave on November 6th. I'm just not convinced that's going to happen. I think the Senate uh, stays Republican hands, and I think the House is going to be closer than what people think. I think it ends up probably going Democrat-led, but I think it's going to be closer than what people think it's going to be. Jive that with what you told us about your concerns about energy at the start of the, the conversation. Well, the, I mean, the, the energy, I mean, you were talking about anecdotal data, so we went to yard signs, we went to, we're going to turnouts to events. Uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders should be out, out polling people to Vice President Pence. I think Vice President Pence still should be a huge draw. But when you see a scant 200 people in a room for an incumbent governor and an incumbent congressman who are in the fight of their life for re-election, I think that room should have been vibrant and full. That was my concern. This is where I think we're post-politics as we've known it. And I've said for months now that Republicans and win in spite of themselves. People don't care about the classic political paradigms. Bob, good to see you, man. We'll do it next week. Good to see you. All right. God bless you guys. When we come back for hour two, we're going to take a broader look at the election and where things stand on both sides, heading into the final two weeks right here, live on The Blaze, on demand at CRTV. We are back with hour two here of that should answer your question. Uh, we are back with hour two here of the Steve Day Show live on the Blaze on demand later today at CRTV. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. And you've got the podcast edition, which will be posted later today. You'll get that on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you have time today to leave us a five-star review, we would appreciate that. The more of you that do that, the more people that uh, end up checking us out. I mean, I'm a big podcast listener, and there's so many options out there that I have a tendency to kind of take the first swipe at those that seem to have already built a pretty substantial audience and work my way down from there. So that really helps us get the word out. Now, if you don't like what we do here, don't lie. But like your mama said, if you ain't got nothing nice to say, just kind of keep that knowledge to yourself and just move on. But if you do like what we do, we would greatly appreciate those five-star reviews. Thank you to all of you that have posted those already. And if you don't have time to write that today, hey, we're all busy. Even a little gesture, like on your podcast platform, if you just click that subscribe button, Again, the more people that see that subscribe to what we do, then the more people that end up subscribing. So thank you very much to those of you that are helping us with word of mouth, which is always the best way uh, to spread the word. So we're continuing our deep dive here today on the show into the 2018 election. And we sort of looked at this from more of an activist perspective last hour. This hour, we're going to look at it a little bit more holistically and from a broader perspective. You know, we're running out of, of places and relationships nowadays. Uh, Frank Luntz likes to say we, we, we go, to the in, go to the media nowadays to be confirmed rather than informed. Uh, and I think much of what we do in conservative media really isn't so much a search for truth as it is to counter what we believe to be a largely liberal narrative out of the mainstream media. And so the, the truth becomes difficult to grasp um, more and more. Uh, in our in our nomenclature lexicon and conversations today. But by golly, as long as they put a microphone in front of my face, I, I'm not afraid of the truth. And if the truth is not what I want it to be, I can't fix a situation 
if I don't know what the situation is. You know, you get a call yesterday frantically from my teenage daughter or my oldest teenage daughter. And right in the middle of the Detroit Lions doing something they haven't done in like 20 years, run the ball. So I'm enjoying this. I think the Lions haven't run the ball much since number 20 retired. And I get a call from my teenage, from my oldest teenage daughter, and she's crying her eyes out on the phone and she's in a panic. So right away, because she's built like me, her mindset is like mine. She does not do wilting under pressure. She doesn't do, I'm instantly emotional about situations. So I know something really bad has happened. She's really shaken up. And she's had a serious car accident. And uh, her car gets totaled. And luckily, I mean, it's one of those situations. The collision was the quarter panel. Man, if it had been three inches to the left, it would have hit the broad side of her passenger side door. And she's got a bunch of her friends that are performing with her at the local civic center downtown in the car with her. And there could have been serious injuries. And so just that close, that many inches is how a potential real tragedy was avoided. And the other gentleman had his kids in his car. And so... It was just a crazy situation. And, you know, I, I did my best to let her emote. But then when we had to make some decisions, I said, listen, I can't solve this situation for you or help you solve it if I don't know what the truth is. So I need to know who I need the police officer to tell me who was at fault. Right. I need to know the facts. I can't fix something if I don't know what's wrong. And I think that more and more people today that consume media don't want to know what's wrong. They just want to hear that they're right. And that's why, I, you know, when people ask me when I made the change from sports media to this, was it going to be a big transition? I kind of thought it would be. And then I've realized the last few years, I'm just doing the same show I was always doing. Whether it was Michigan and Michigan State, Michigan, Ohio State, Iowa, Iowa State. I'm just doing the same shows. They're just called Democrats and Republicans now. You tell me why my team's going to win. And if the other team won, it, they, it's only because they cheated. That, it's the same stuff. Well, I hate that crap. So we're going to try and find out what really is happening in this election. And we're going to do it with somebody whose opinion I have greatly respected for many years. Uh, if you're a political junkie, you have seen him on TV countless times. And, and he actually helped my career. I don't know if he realizes this, but when David Yepsen took the job with the Paul Simon School and you moved out of state, like when the caucuses came to town, they, all these networks needed somebody else now to call and talk about it. And so I like got like all the bookings you used to get on cable TV. That was an immense boost to my career, David. I never had a chance to thank you for that. So thank you very much, man. It is good to see you. How you been? Glad to help you out. Good. So you're back in town. And um, I think that, and I've been telling our audience this throughout the course of this election, that I, I really think this part of our state and where I live in this part, this suburb in central Iowa is really now one of the ground zeroes. Of, of, of the American political landscape. And let's start there to see if we're going to share some common assumptions. Because I, I think um, the rural areas have largely become Republican areas. The urban areas have largely become the Democratic areas. And really the last remaining battleground are these suburban, exurban areas like where I live here in suburban Des Moines. Do you agree or disagree I agree with that? with that. And the reason I do is because we're seeing the arrival full force of millennial voters uh, and younger uh, coming into the electorate. Many of them live in the suburbs. Um, and you're also seeing a shift in this election. There's a battle for the votes of women. And Republicans ha- and conservatives have, have oftentimes been polling poorly uh, with the, that cohort. And now we're starting to see them uh, objecting to some of the things that the, the, they see coming out of the Trump administration. Trump's numbers among with women are very bad. 
And so the suburbs uh, are here and I think nationally are really the new battleground because they're moving away from what was a traditional Republican base. Mm-hmm. A lot of evangelicals living in suburbs, mm-hmm. all right? Mm-hmm. And um, now you're seeing the arrival uh, of new voters and uh, younger voters, and a lot of them are women. See, one of the things I've always watched for in politics is who's attracting new people. Um, I saw this in 1987 when I was covering Pat Robertson's campaign for president in Iowa. And I would go to these events and say, who are these people? I don't know them. They're not your traditional Republican audience. And today, these people... Oh, they're in the mainstream of the Republican Party, but they're largely the, the evangelical base. You saw it in 2004 in this state where uh, George W. Bush was favored to lose against John Kerry. Mm-hmm. And even the, the polls had it completely had it wrong. And we got up the next day and said, why did Bush carry the state? Evangelical voters in western Iowa came out in larger numbers. We already thought all those people were in the electorate. Mm-hmm. So it's who's adding new people. Uh, and, and on the Democratic side, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon was new people coming in. And I think what you're seeing in the suburbs now uh, are, are, many, are a lot of new people. And a lot of Republican legislators, people who in the past didn't have anything to worry about, are really getting some uh, stiff competition from Democratic women. Uh, you see that on TV. Uh, the majority leader in the Iowa Senate is from, an, from the Ankeny suburb, just north of Des Moines. Safe seat. He's got a real race on his hand from a Democratic challenger. So short answer is it's new people coming in. I think the new people thing is a, is a, is a keen observation because when I had my first real, not just as an activist and a voter, but where I was on the inside look, or looking at the inside of a caucus process was in 08 um, and with the Huckabee campaign. And <clears throat> what we saw in that campaign is we saw Ron Paul build a base from zero to he got about 10 or 11% in the caucuses that year. And the perception was that this was a huge surge of libertarianism. And then in 2012, we saw him basically double that with a lot of new voters and uh, darn near win the state. And that, and the perception remained, there's this new libertarianism. And when I would travel around the country to CPACs or various events, there was this notion that was the libertarian moment. You probably heard some of that stuff as well. But what I saw with the Cruz campaign in 2016, when when Trump came here, and he never really understood how to build a a campaign in Iowa, which is why we beat him, but the power of his persona helped put a campaign on the ground almost organically that was almost big enough, good enough to win. And And what I saw is the same people that Ron Paul initially built, some of the same people he initially built his base with, and then Rand Paul doubled that base with, were now going to Trump. Meaning that there, there was an organization of, of libertarian believers. And some of those people are activists in our state that are friends of mine. Right. But you, there, there really weren't any more libertarians than there ever were. That, that's always been a single-digit demographic, and it's probably going to be for the foreseeable future. Where Ron and Ray and Paul expanded that base is there were people who had no idea what in the Sam Hill and Ayn Rand was. and never heard of a John Galt. But they, when, 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 they, when those guys told you they were going to do something to shut government down, they just, especially Ron, there was enough of a crazed look in his eye, and you hated the system enough, you thought, I think he darn well might push the button. And I think Trump 
and I think a lot of people think Ted Cruz destroyed Rand Paul's base. I don't think we did. I think Trump did. I think Trump came along and he had that crazed look in his face. And a lot of those people that were just jumping on a libertarian train because they thought it was drain the swamp, thought Trump was drain the swamp guy. And I think Trump is who destroyed Rand Paul's base in Iowa. And, and I think that's something that helped him discover um, a new semblance of voters who were fine with big government, but might be a little more culturally conservative. And you know, a lot of Republican consultants think the electorate's the exact opposite, that they want streamlined government and Sodom and Gomorrah. And Trump actually proved that's totally actually wrong. Most uh, people are perfectly fine with big government programs for roads and healthcare and things of that nature. They just aren't necessarily into blowing up every moral value system they believe in for the process. He found those voters, and we missed a lot of them when we forecasted this last election. Is it possible we're going to miss them again 15 days from now? Oh, no question. Uh, for, first of all, in both parties, a lot of people come home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people. we talk about people who are undecided, uh, people, independent voters. What are they going to do? Well, a lot of them won't show up, although this is going to be a big turnout election uh, compared to other mm-hmm. off-year elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of people just say, oh, I'm not going to vote. I'm really troubled, too, by the polling. I've, I've spent a, a career analyzing polling data. And, uh, I, and, and, and I know a lot of pollsters, and they're having to make adjustments for how they, they gather data. I mean, how often do you answer your phone mm-hmm. if, if you don't recognize the phone number? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this skews uh, data big time. So that's, and that's another caveat about all this polling. You have to be careful not to make it use it as a projection mm-hmm. for what's going to happen because you've, you've got close races and you've got new people coming in and you've got other people falling by the wayside, um, which is what makes – uh, elections uh, an interesting thing to study. I'm glad you brought up the polling thing because I have pushed back on a lot of my conservatives the last couple of years that the polls were wrong in 2016. Actually, the polls are pretty right. If you look at the Real Clear Politics polling average, I think it was off by 0.7 percent. What who was wrong were guys like me on the right or a Nate Silver or a, and an upshot on the left who take that data and then project an outcome. And I think a lot of us operated under the assumption. I mean. Donald Trump was running canvasser ads on Craigslist in Florida a week before the election. Clear sign they didn't necessarily know how to put together a ground campaign, all right? Uh, They were desperate for people. And so I think a lot of us looked at the polling data, which showed Hillary would win the popular vote, but most of the battleground states were within the margin for error. And we saw, well, this looks a lot like what we saw in 2012, where Obama was going to win the popular vote and the battleground states were in the margin for error. And the Democrats have the superior get out the vote operation and they'll make up two to three points on the ground on game day uh, in these battleground states and, and win the election. And I think the assumption was that that was what was going to occur again with this polling data. And instead, you have situations like uh, Trump essentially won Wisconsin because 20,000 black voters that voted for Obama in 2016 stayed didn't stay home. That's right. Right. Um, and, and now I don't believe you can reclimate winning three battleground states by a total of 78,000 votes as like a political science model. That's like rolling snake eyes with your mortgage right. on the line. Right. right. But I, I, I do think it does speak to the fact that the other side cannot just guarantee that their voters are going to show up no matter who they nominate or who their candidates are, or that um, we, we, we clearly can identify who Trump's base is, because you're right, Trump's base isn't going to respond to any pollsters, uh, for, by and large. And, 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 and in rural areas, sometimes, they're, they, like a YouGov, which is strictly an internet poll, they're not going to know what the hell a YouGov is, David. And so I think we do have to ask ourselves— 
how do we compile enough data so that there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel rather than just kind of cherry picking one or two pollsters we kind of think have their finger on the electorate? Well, that's why you're smart to be looking at the real clear politics average. Um, there was one place where polling was not good in the last time around in Wisconsin. Hillary's polls and the public uh, polls mm -hmm. were flat out wrong mm -hmm. and that she made some dumb strategic moves as a result of that flawed data. She didn't go uh, to to Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of things wrong with Hillary Clinton's campaign and they admit that you know, they didn't make as many stops as Trump did. You know, simple things. Th those may not replicate themselves. One other problem that to be to be watchful for in in looking at polling about Donald Trump is there are a lot of you're right there are Trump voters who as supporters who won't have anything to do with talking to a poll there are a lot of them who are quite proud yeah <laughs> you know, I hear from them right. every time I quote polling they will all email me and say we we hang up on pollsters don't quote polls to us but yes. there is a cohort it's usually mainstream Republicans who are going to vote for Trump but it's not cool to say yeah that you're for Donald Trump right so they don't you know, they're not very forthcoming. So you've got to take, as a reporter, you've got to take all of this stuff with a with a big uh, grain of salt. And in 2016, you mentioned women in suburbs. And that was the number one reason why I thought Republicans were doomed in that election. And what we saw when the numbers came in is, is Trump did underperform among women in, in the suburbs from previous Republicans, but not enough that there, it was more of him underperforming than Democrats making up huge grounds in, in those areas. And in the end, he ended up winning white women and married women, just like Romney did. Didn't get quite the margins Romney did over Obama. And so there was an erosion. But when it came down to those married women saying, as much as Trump nauseates me with his persona and his antics, do I really, does that trump the, the contrarian values I have next to the Democratic Party? And for some of them, it did but not as much as the, as the pre-election pollsters said it was going to. And I do wonder if we get down to election day again this year with, with what's happened with the, with the screaming and yelling and all that stuff, could we see again where another group of suburban women are like, I just can't stand Donald Trump, but I moved to the suburbs because I don't want to raise my kids around stuff like that. You see what I'm getting yes, to? Yes, and the big concern that Trump will have now is blue-collar women who did not go to college. Mm-hmm were for him last time, and they're, they're starting to lose some strength. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason why he's smart to be doing uh, these rallies. But, Steve, it is close to the election, but it's, it's eons, the, the October surprise. Things happen at the end. In 2000, uh, George W. Bush's drunk driving right. record came right. up in the last few days, and it moved numbers. Yeah. It went from an election that looked like he was going to win to four to five points to he lost the popular vote. So yeah. there, this, this last-minute stuff, what's this caravan thing going to do mm -hmm. uh, to the electorate? Those, those images, I think that motivates Trump's base. Um, it, it just graphically illustrates that uh, the country has an, has an immigration problem. Now, there are some people who think this is a, a democratic you know, plot or scheme. I, I don't think so because it, it, uh, I think it's motivating – Trump's base. But we'll have to watch that. But my point is, it's a new thing. It's just showing up. Uh, and there are other new things that can happen. What's the, what's going to happen in, in Moscow when Bolton is meeting with Putin? We're talking about doing away with a, an arms control mm -hmm. treaty. How, what's, the, what's the politics on election day of that? Mm -hmm. So in addition to everything else we've been talking about, I think you still have to say, it's still early. <laughs> you know what? This is where I want to bring you into the conversation. Because... <laughs> 
So back in January, he tried talking me in to this theorem on this election. And my analytical mind attempted to come up with every argument to reject this for months. And that's just like, no way, no way. And then finally, what was about May or June? I think so. I gave in. And I said, you know what? It's what you probably heard me talking about Vanderplatz about last hour. The trend is your friend until it conflicts with human nature. And in the end, algorithms don't vote. Formulas don't vote. Algorithms don't play football and, and formulas don't play football. People do. And in the end, human nature trumps your algorithms and your data. All right. And so I finally gave in and I decided this will be our official show position on this election. Todd, I am, I, I am eager to get a grizzled veteran like David Yepsen's reaction to yes. your analysis. Well, so especially go ahead. since David was there uh, being the guy I wanted to be when I grew up, when I started at the uh, uh, Des Moines Register. So if he if he gives me the on this, uh, I'm, <laughs> hey, it's all good. David, the official show, the, the official motto of this election is the one who is dumbest last loses. Now, take it in. It's not meant to be hyperbolic. We believe that this is not only scientifically, but existentially sound. What do you think? Last minute mistakes? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Both sides are so disliked by the other and by most of the people on their own side, frankly, for various reasons, that whoever does the last dumb thing to most antagonize and tick off the other side's base to create the worst backlash, that's who's going to lose. That's right, because that's the flavor voters are going to have in their mouth when they go in to vote. Yeah. And that's what I mean If to be a little bit more esoteric. That when I say this uh, election, uh, when we were talking with Bob and you overheard, that this isn't a remotely aspirational election. You know, people aren't really talking about the the big, beautiful ideas, the themes, no. um, not in any real transformational way. It's And not that gutter politics hasn't always been around, David. I mean, the, the, the negative ads, are big because they work, but that's also just become... Our, our collective political ethos has been the race to the bottom. And uh, it's left a lot of people with a very bad taste in their mouth. And so the last dumb thing is <laughs> that's a, that's a, what do we call that? The, the dace theory of politics? That's the Erzin theory. <laughs> the, I'm going to give the, the credit he deserves. Right. Yeah, he, he convinced me. And the, you know, I, I am not an easy person to sway off my own arguments. I love me some me. All right, but he convinced me on this one. Give you know what? You can look at the data all you want, but in the end, when everything is because when you mention aspirational election, you know when I was in the throes of the Tea Party thing in 2010, we were doing 913 groups and founding father, you know, tributes and meetings. You know, um, I don't see any of that. Mm-hmm. Like, like this isn't you know we missed our moment for a progressive Valhalla and we need to call America back to our progressive values on the left. This is Trump is John Travolta and get shorty and he's got to go down. You know he stole an election from us and and it it's very their energy is similar. Our energy was like that in 2014. All the aspirational talk about the founding fathers and restoring the Constitution we had in 2010 was gone. 2014 was just like, Obama's a communist and he's got to go. And I'm sensing that's very similar to what the, what the way that they view Trump in this election. What do you think? Um, we know that there is a double-digit percentage of the electorate that voted twice for Barack Obama, uh, who then voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. 15%. It, it's hard to quantify to your data point. Mm-hmm. But the, the proof of what you're t- talking about here is these are people, they wanted to change they wanted to see something different. And they were with Obama in two elections, and when they didn't get it, they went to Trump. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no rational explanation for that. 
other than uh, an angry electorate desperately looking for a change in direction in this country. Well, Steve, you should ask David about the, the progressive side of what we believe in that the equation is that progressives just can't help themselves. But you've talked about Republicans. Do they the hatred of their base versus not knowing how to win versus not wanting to win. I mean, that's when we talk about dumb on the right and Republicans, that's what we're talking about. I, I mean, I think you should flesh that. Yeah, side I up. think that's a good point, too, because one of the things um, to me, the number one difference between Republicans and Democrats, David, is Democrats inspire their base to get what they want and Republicans conspire against their base to get what they want. <laughs> and and what I what I see is. What we see, conservative media, it, it doesn't sell a lot of clicks to say you've elected a whole bunch of people that really just don't agree fundamentally and want a more moderate version of what the Democrats want. That doesn't sell, mm -mm. okay? And so we like to go with the evil party versus the stupid party, which is, which is just, again, these are the lies we prefer to tell ourselves. And it's not that the Republicans are dumb or gutless. It's that they're not willing to do what we want them to do to win. And I think you saw this in 2012, where I really believe Romney's entire campaign was set up to accomplish two objectives simultaneously. Beat Barack Obama and do it without catering to his base at all. That's why he never ate a chicken sandwich, why he didn't do any of the traditional things Republicans do to get votes of people like me. I think he wanted to win without having to owe the base anything. And I think they got dragged into this Kavanaugh fight, kicking and screaming. I think Kavanaugh was a capitulation. That's why they didn't nominate an Amy Coney Barrett. They were trying to avoid any existential fight on any level and just go home. And the Democrats are like, screw that noise. We're, we only come here for existential fights. So we're going to treat, we're going to treat Brett Kavanaugh like, you know, he's Thomas Sowell or Robert Bork. And the, and the Republicans got dragged into a fight they didn't want to have. And then the minute the fight got over and they won it, they all went home. They didn't realize, hey, when we pick these fights, it rallies our base. They could be nominating all kinds of judicial people that would, and putting them on Fox and television that would fire up their base. They won't pick any budget fights. They won't even have a show vote to make the tax cuts permanent. They wanted to get the hell out of there because in the end, if the price of victory is doing what people like me want them to do, I think they'd rather lose. Well, I think the Kavanaugh fight motivated both bases. Yeah, but I think that, to me it's a little bit – can I use a sports analogy? Yeah. Ten years ago when we had the mental and physical edge on Michigan State – Mike Hart dropping little brother created the backlash that inspired Michigan State to spend the next 10 years getting back at us for this. But you can only spinal tap so many times, right? I mean, you, once you're at 11, there's not a 15. And, and when you try to go from 11 to 15, you then, there's, there, then there's a collateral damage, Pat, where you so go crazy, you've now dragged the other side out of mouthballs. Like, so right now, I, don't think, I think Michigan can call Michigan State little brother all day long. And it will only fire them up because Michigan State's already as pissed as they can possibly get. And I think we're that way with the Kavanaugh thing. Democrats, what were they going to do next? I mean, we've burned down Berkeley. We've, we've, we tried to kill a bunch of Republican congressmen. We tried to shoot up the Family Research Council. Front. I mean, what would they, what, were they literally going to start lighting themselves? There, there was no place left for them to go, in my view. That it could, at that point, you were at a loss leader, diminishing returns. You could only then inspire the Republican base. And that's why I said the day after the Kavanaugh thing, if the election were right now, this would have been the James Comey letter of 2018. Mm -hmm. But the fact now, doesn't that seem like it was three months ago and it was like two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. And, and it's like, we don't even remember Brett Kavanaugh's name. And the Republicans have got to contrive some fights to engage their base because we didn't keep our promise to repeal Obamacare. We didn't keep our promise to defund Planned Parenthood. We didn't keep our promise to build a wall. Doesn't necessarily fire your base up, David. And I think this is the problem they have is, is the only thing right now that they offer their base is the Democrats suck. 
And if they don't provoke fights to remind their base why they hate the Democrats, they won't close that energy gap. That's where I think something like the caravan yes, uh, can agreed. inspire that agreed. Republican base. I, I agree. Yes. Uh, how do re- the, the Republican base, how does the Republican base reach out to moderate Republicans uh, and get them back in the fold? There's a, we knew that fight was going to come in the Republican Party after Trump lost. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't happen, but we're still getting – he won, but we're still having that, uh, that tension. It is Trump's party. Uh, but you look at you mentioned uh, Congressman Steve King's race in Western Iowa. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who could go down because that moderate Republican base is not voting for him like they used to in the past. To me, I think the mistake that King has made is um, how do I put this gently? I, I think King has assumed that um, the Republican base. There's, there's parts of what Breitbart does I agree with, and then there's parts of it that I don't agree with. And I've disagreed with it publicly, even on this show, when I have. I think King has made the mistake of believing that the Republican base has become Breitbart's audience in total. And I think that's, that's the problem he has with the dynamic that you're talking right. about. And so because he's, made, he's overshot his, um, uh, his audience, he's getting all of the backlash of being closely associated with that and then none of the benefit of it at the exact same time. And I think moderate Republicans are making the same mistake the other way as I think they are. They need to get closer to Trump because all the Trump backlash vote, they're not They can't avoid it, David. There's nothing, there's nothing they can say that will cause a Democrat to say, maybe Ben Sass isn't that bad. It's not going to happen. And so what they need to do is actually get some more of that Trump vote back in their favor to close the energy gap. I think King has gone too far the other way. And it's a, it is a balancing act. And I think King's on one is on the wrong side of it right now. And I think the Republican, as, uh, 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 Republican Party as a whole is on the wrong side of it on the other end of the teeter-totter. Well, people do tend to come home near the end. And the King Re- will benefit from that. And, and, and Steve King should, should benefit from yep. that. But, you know, one of my favorite movies is Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah. All right. At the very end, the colonel says, what have I done? Remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely, and, yeah. And, and I think the, the Republicans in Iowa did an interesting thing. They took away the ability of people to cast a straight ticket vote. Mm-hmm. And they thought politically that this might uh, be a hurt Democrats. Yep. But now they're, they're thinking this could hurt Steve King in western Iowa because yep. you do have moderate Republicans who, who have in the past – just voted that, and they voted a straight Republican ticket, and that always helped King. Now, they're not so sure. And so there's a lot of Republicans saying, what have I done? Dr. Frankenstein always ends up hating the monster he created every time. All right, when we come back with David Yepsen, here's my theory of what's going to happen in 15 days. I want to get his take on it next. back here live on the blaze and on demand at crtv this is the steve day show todd and aaron are here with me as well as a guy who uh is just uh, to me one of the most uh, respected political analysts i've come across in my career david yepsen if you're a political junkie you saw him on cable tv for years uh as sort of the guy to give you the the you know the What's going on here at Iowa during the caucuses, for example? Uh, he held, I mean, what was the name of the think tank? Remind me again. It was for, named after Congressman Simon, right? All right. 
Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. You did that for a while. You came back, and now you're hosting uh, the big political show on IPTV statewide each week, or a part of that show, I should say. Um, my favorite moment ever on that show is, I don't know if, were you here, was he here when I used to refer to Gronstall as governor? Were you here when I used to do that? Yeah. Because he was basically running the whole show. It was like the, the Republicans weren't in charge. I used to call him Governor Gronstall. And and one day when we were doing the show live at the State Fair is, um, you know, people come around the Crystal Studios at WHO and you try to get your attention when you're live on the air. And I look over one day and I, I learned after a while, just ignore people so I can do my show. And I look over the one day, this guy's like six foot four and he keeps pounding on the window. All right. And finally gets my attention. I look over. It's Gronstall's chief of staff, Eric something is his name. Baker. Like, Baker, yeah. And it's him. And he mouths the words to me through the glass. He's like, it's Mike Gronstall. And, Gron- and Gronstall was right there at the Crystal Studios. <laughs> you know. And so we gave him like a shout out live on the air. And if you didn't listen to us in Iowa back in the day, you have no idea why this is funny. But one day you guys had him on the show. I don't think you were, you were gone when this happened. You had him on the show and Dean is introducing the panel. And man, if I didn't play the hell out of this clip on my show, <laughs> Dean introduces him and uh, our guest this week on Iowa Press, Governor Grant, <laughs> Senate Majority Leader Mike Grant, and the look on Gronstall's face, the Democratic leader, just classic. That's great. Oh gosh, I, I never. I've, I've, I have that in my archive, man. Personal, I kept that. All of these. I'm not going to laugh at a moderator's mistake because yes. I'll make my own. But that's when you know you're penetrating the zeitgeist. Is when your trolls start going mainstream. That was classic. All right, but uh, we wanted to get David on here to get a, a broader lens of what's happening in this election outside of each side's respective propaganda. And I know we told you our official show position is whoever's dumbest last loses. When I look at this analytically, see, I kind of think, and you, I, I can't wait to get your take on this. I think when we wake up when in two weeks from Wednesday, we're going to look and we're going to say, man, you know, there were too many Republican retirements in swing districts that Hillary won in 2016, and the Democrats have a 10 to 15 seat majority in the House because of it. And there were too many open Senate seats in places that Trump trounced, and those are statewide elections, and Republicans have a one, two, or three more senators than they had, and I don't know why we couldn't have just, you know, predicted in January that the country isn't polarized. It's balkanized. There are too many places where it doesn't matter who the other side nominates. You can't penetrate culturally, uh, politically, that demographic. And there are uh, Amy Walter at Cook Political Report had this analysis. So I don't want to steal it from her um, that there's two elections happening. The House election is happening in the Democratic America and the Senate election is happening in the Repu- more Republican-leaning America. And I think when we all wake up here two weeks from now, we're going to realize that we could have probably called these demographics 11 months ago. I think most of us that do what you and I do for a living on both sides are so caught into the vortex of Trump's persona and, and the fact that he, the, the showmanship that he brings to the table, the, the P.T. Barnum uh, aspect of it, the fact he goes there on social media and outside a polite company that says the things you're not supposed to say, that I think we think the fundamentals of elections have changed. And I think we're going to learn that they really haven't changed. It's a highly balkanized country. And in the end, the Democrats won the House because the seats favored them demographically and the Republicans held on to the Senate and gained a couple seats because it favored them. And the frosting on the cake, is vastly different, but the cake itself isn't. Your thoughts? I agree. I think uh, Democrats right now, history says that the Democrats will, will win the uh, House. Uh, I saw a figure since the Civil War, 
there's on, there has only been three midterm elections where the party in the White House gained seats. So just the arc of history that, that, that says that the House of Representatives, that's the weather vane, mm-hmm. they're likely to go Democratic. Uh, and what you describe as uh, Senate races, uh, the same thing. I mean, a good, the Heidi Heitkamp race in uh, North Dakota, I'm, she's uh, everything I read and see about that is that she will lose that race. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, you talk about this balkanization, Steve. It's getting even more pronounced. America is, uh, there was, there's a book out called The Big Sort. I can't remember the, the name of the author, so I apologize, but The Big Sort. And it's how we're all sorting ourselves into our own little groups and tribes. And this book is, was out several years ago. But it's true. You you start. We're resegregating ourselves. Used to be when I was growing up in small town Iowa, my dad's a blue collar worker, and two doors down lived the county attorney. Mm-hmm. All right, the lawyer in town. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen much anymore. We we're moving into our own the segregated neighborhoods of people who look like us, mm-hmm. and who are educated like us, and go to the same churches. And in that resegregation, you're creating a whole lot of safe house seats. Uh, and so you're you're uh, you're having that phenomenon occur. Fewer fewer of these seats that Hillary won that Republican holds. The other thing that's happening is it's having an impact on the electoral college because there's a rural skew to the electoral college. Mm-hmm. You know the founders set this up. We can't have the big states mm-hmm. dominating the small states, so we cut this deal. Mm-hmm. You know the House is based on population and. And the Senate is based on area, and it worked pretty well. But there are a lot of people out there who are very unhappy that uh, it doesn't always work, and that someone who with the most votes didn't wind up in the White House. And the reason for that is of the rural skew in in, uh, in the electoral college. There's just senators got an electoral vote for them, and for every Senate seat, and and that's that's uh, that's and, the, and that. then the rural people like Hillary Clinton literally won 15 percent of the counties. In 2016, why should 15% of the counties dictate to 85% of the rest of Amer- of the of the rest of the American landmass yep. how they should live? This is why I use the term balkanization. Mm-hmm. Polarization is personal. Balkanization is cultural, and that's that's really where I think we are right now. Is um, we are out of? I know we've bastardized this term. But there really aren't any safe spaces anymore. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe it happened, but I, I don't remember my first year playing for Chris Cataldo's dad at the South Des Moines Little League. And we were the Indians. All right. I, I don't remember, you know, that was 1981. All right. And a bunch of us, you know, rolled out of Miss Cardamon's second grade class at Howe Elementary to go play at South Des Moines Little League. And I don't know if the parents in the stands, maybe they did, but I don't remember it. I don't remember them arguing about, you know, who voted for Carter or Reagan in the last election. But it it does seem as if there is no place to go anymore. That everything doesn't have to be an existential argument. I, I took my, my daughter, Zoe, the youngest daughter, on a daddy-daughter date to see Smallfoot yesterday. Here's the plot of the movie. I, I just... You know, Zoe's giving me the teenage guilt trip. We haven't done a daddy-daughter date in a while. I don't really like any of the afternoon games in the NFL anyway. So I'm like, oh, let's go, all right? And she loves these kind of movies. I take my kid to the movie, and here's the plot line. 
The Yetis are an insulated society who are governed, I'm not making any of this up, who are governed by laws written on stones that are all lies and they, need, and they deny science and free thinking and they need, to, uh, they need to eject all the stones and the laws written on stones to join the larger global community. I'm like, dude, I'm at the Windsong Theater in Urbandale, Iowa, all right? I, I, my career is the culture war. I've I, I, I signed up for this, and even I'm kind of like, I just wanted to take my kid to see a movie. Yeah, I was going to say, about don't you ever just take your yeah, kid to I see a movie? I just wanted to go to the movies, okay? You know, and so if, if I'm at my saturation point, and I signed up to do this full-time for a living, I can't imagine what the average American who doesn't have the interest or intensity level that I do has to, you know, I remember talking to Kirk Ferentz early in his career at Iowa when he hadn't signed his contract and he, and he didn't like the, the out language. And, and, and he described to me in a private conversation his relationship with Bob Bowlesby, the athletic director at the time about it. And he goes, well, right now it's kind of bone on bone. There's no cartilage. All right. That's a pretty good, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. That's a pretty good description for where we are at right now. Culturally, don't you see it? There's no cartilage anymore. It's just bone on bone in the knee that's right now. I, I think that's a very good metaphor. I do. How do we, so w- the challenge for me as a conservative then is I don't think that's a great culture to hand my kids off to, no matter whose side has hege- hegemony at, the po- at that point. So how do I bridge that divide without at the same time compromising what I believe because I, I, Glenn and I had the, had this conversation in Dallas last week. We were trying to make a mental list of people who may not be right wingers like us that we thought we could put on the air and have a legitimate adult conversation about these sorts of events and what's happening in the election. And we got stymied like at about three names. All right. Mm-hmm. Which is why when Todd came in here the other day, he's like, Hey man, I was talking to David Yeps and we said, I was like, let's do it because these sorts of conversations are becoming increasingly impossible right now. That's right. And we've got to be able to talk to each other. My great fear is, my hope and my fear is we're going to have, as I said, probably have a Democratic House, Republican Senate, Republican President. The good news there is that that you just put off the table all the most extreme things on both sides. Not going to happen. Can they find a way to come to some middle ground on just a few things? that are tearing this country apart. we got to do something about immigration. We have, we have all these issues. Here's the thing, though. I will think, it, will I something I, happen, I, I or will, think, they, will they not do anything? I think they'll, they'll launch an impeachment in week one. And that, that's, uh, that's what will happen. They have to. See, you know, you and I have had conversations or, or have covered the existential debate on the right for years. And you've always known more of the moderate guys, and I know more of the rabble-rouser guys. What, what has largely gone uncovered is the existential conversation on the left. Most Democrats in America are still like my mom, single mom, 15 years old on the south side of Des Moines, who doesn't believe that uh, she doesn't want to give $500 million a year to Planned Parenthood or kill kids. But she also thinks that when we can't, when someone can't care for their own health care, we don't throw them out on the street and the government ought to help them out. But there is a, there is a rising tide on the, that is, that is not liberal anymore. They're leftist. Yes. And the different and, and that and the leftist doesn't want to share a country with somebody. But like that me, argument David. is going on inside the Democratic Party right now. It, don't talk about impeachment. Mm-hmm. Knock it off. This Antifa groups mm-hmm. that, that want to hector can't people in out mm-hmm. having dinner. You know, mm-hmm. knock it off. Go register voters. Spend mm-hmm. your time 
doing something constructive. That argument's big time going on. Who do you think's going to, and I don't know, who do you think will win that argument ultimately? Well, I think, I think in the House of Representatives, in a Democratic House of Representatives, there will be a faction that will insist on that, but there'll be most Democratic members of the U.S. House will say, no, we're mm-hmm. not going to, we're going to read the report, we're going to look at things, but it was not going to happen. It didn't work for Republicans when they did it to Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. And uh, so presumably they'll learn a lesson from that politically. Their goal will be to try to find an alternative candidate who can beat Donald Trump, which is a whole other show. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, And you're going to get to do a lot of them yep. because this is going to be ground – Iowa, where we are, yep. is going to be ground zero Absolutely. for the 2020 The sorting process is going to happen right here. That's right. I agree. And then having, having nominated uh, a candidate with very high negatives last time, they're going to be looking for a candidate who's probably – who they hope will be more electable. Aaron, forgive me. Let me bring you in here as the as the millennial that's been watching sure. uh, your elders here try to hash out any semblance of, uh, of of common ground for the last forty five minutes. Your thoughts on the conversation right. or what? Yeah, um, I, I think the biggest the biggest challenge I can foresee for uh, that the not left, uh, the, you know, the not left in this country, which we described in the first hour, the biggest challenge for the not left is going to be um, selling. People my age who are who have not already given themselves to leftist ideology, who maybe just don't care, kind of like I have as as far as this election goes, despite, you know, the, the job that I have, um, not really caring just because everybody's terrible. I know a lot of people and not a lot of people my age. And it wasn't just my, you know, my uh, apartment mate who I described in the first hour. A lot of people who know what I do, who will. You know, sometimes I'll keep in touch with them. They just don't care because they are so they 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 do not care because everybody in their mind sucks. So I think the biggest challenge people on the not left are going to have, as I kind of alluded to in the first hour, is selling people my generation on something that is not nationalistic, a set of ideals. Um, that is that is conservatism and actually being able to paint a picture of an America that you know is is more in line of of how we were founded, not just this nationalistic, this this um, really polarized or um, I should say balkanized picture that we seemingly have all of the time on the right. And I don't see, at least in this election, anybody, almost anybody on the not left that's been able to do that. And I think that kind of lends itself again. To this conversation that we're we're having, we just spent how many minutes talking about how we don't have conversations. That's that's in order to actually sell people on your ideas and persuade people, you have to have open and honest debate. And there's just none of that happening right now because of what we just got done talking about the balkanization of of, of America. And so again, from the outside looking in. I think the biggest issue that we have, and we talked about this in the first hour again, the biggest issue that we have, and I'm t- talking about on both sides, is that nobody is talking to each other, and that just begets more and more balkanization. Can I load that into a question for David? Sure. Because we'd be remiss. We were talking a little bit and laughing, but I mean, this is the unicorn section of Des Moines Register <sighs> veterans here. And David, when you were there, because you were saying you were, you, you may as well have been the Ted Cruz of that newsroom. So where does that put Steve and I, for goodness <laughs> sakes? But you talk about the conversation. What, broadly speaking, what is respo- what is journalism's responsibility for where that discussion has come to this point? 
I, I call it journalism is magical and not at all broken because they seem to believe that uh, it's it's not their problem. I fundamentally believe it is as much as their problem as anybody else. What say you? Journalism is going back to the future. The early days of journalism journalism are called yellow journalism, yellow journalism era. And this it, and it goes to the great barons who started newspapers and sold them cheap. And mm-hmm. the paper was colored yellow. And that was called yellow journalism. And they were very opinionated and they were very sensational. And then along in about the 1920s, this thing called journalism school was invented. And, and we were going to go to a notion of objectivity. We're coming back to the old model where your goal was to you, – you're driving readers, listeners, clicks, and eyeballs. Mm-hmm. And what does that is outrageous, sensationalism. Uh, just look at what's on the internet, uh, and that contributes to this. What he what he was talking about the polarization because you don't people aren't going to consume news. They're going. What Steve was talking about too. They're going to whoever agrees with them to reinforce their their biases, and yep. that makes it very difficult for journalism to be sort of the common ground. I mean, everybody used to go to Walter Cronkite, and everybody used to go. What was the LBJ time. line when I lost Walter Cronkite? I knew I lost, lost the country. Right. Yeah. yeah, and that was that was where we got our facts, and then we went off and had our our arguments or discussions. Now we're not we we we're watching Hannity or we're watching Rachel, and then we go shout at each other. And I've unfortunately, there's one piece of thought. Unfortunately, how does this change? And in our country's history. When we've been at periods like this, it takes a cataclysm. It takes a tragic event, the Civil War, uh, the Great Depression, 9-11, World War II. What were events that got us to quit thinking the way we were, to join together with fellow Americans and work on common solutions? And God, I hope I'm wrong. Because I'm not. I don't want another see another cataclysmic event that forces us uh, to, to quit to start talking with one another again. That is very well said. I've, I've had cable news at major networks, cable news bookers tell me this year when they call me to book me and get my pre-screen me that they don't want my opinion. They want my side. And then if my opinion does not, you know, line up with their Venn diagram of a side, then they go get somebody who does. Um, I've been brought on interviews where I thought I was going to do legitimate analysis and told that I want Christian Sharia law because of what everything you're just describing. It is it it it's the balkanization of the country. I hope we bridge some of that today. David Yepsen, thank you for joining us, brother. It was good to see you. Thank you for having me. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show until tomorrow, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.